This morning, our scripture reading will be from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. That's Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's time to buy a new one. Let's just use this. Sorry for that. Heard a story about a a, a guy who was traveling and he stopped at a rural gas station to fuel up his car and to get a snack. And he looked across the highway and he could see a couple of men working. They, based on the advertisement on their vehicle, they worked for the state. And one of the guys would go by and dig a hole, and then another guy would come by a little bit later and fill the hole back in with dirt. The guy just stood there and watched as these, these two men dug holes and filled holes, dug holes and filled holes, and, and he finally he could not take it anymore. So he decided to walk across the street and ask those two men what they were doing. And they said, well, we're working. We work for the state, and we have a job to do. And the guy said, well, you're just wasting taxpayer money. And they said, what are you talking about? We have a three-man team. It's me, Mike, and Joe. I dig the hole. Joe plants a tree in the hole. And then Mike fills the hole back in with dirt. And then Mike chimed in and said, And yeah, just because Joe's homesick doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing our job. (laughs) You know, I tell you that story because I'm sure there are a great many of us out there that at times feel like the work that we do is monotonous, menial, boring, and maybe even at times unimportant. And I really don't want anybody to feel that way about work. God himself is identified as a worker, and God himself has given you and I work to do. But what is of most concern to me is that we never think about heaven the way we do work. You see, I'm afraid that for some of us, we have the mindset that heaven's going to be boring, monotonous, menial. We have the mindset that we would rather be bored in heaven than burned in hell, so we'll do what we need to to get there. And that's not the right mindset. I think that we have developed this idea to some degree 
that heaven's just not going to be all that enjoyable because it's going to be like a never-ending worship service. And while, yes, we will worship in heaven, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, it's never going to be monotonous. It's never going to be boring. And today I want to deal with that misconception about heaven because I think it has become all too popular among Christians today. See, I think the reason we've ad adopted the mindset about that heaven's going to be boring is because we've misunderstood references to heaven as a place of rest. You'll notice in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, that John heard a voice from heaven say, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The voice described heaven as a place of permanent rest. But what kind of rest are we talking about? I think it's very important for us to understand the kind of rest that heaven offers. And then to follow that up by understanding the kind of work that we'll be doing in heaven. See, heavenly rest is not a reference to sleep. Now, for a great many of us, Rest conjures that idea of a Sunday afternoon nap. So we inevitably associate rest with sleep. But that's not what the Bible is trying to convey about heaven when it refers to it as a place where we may rest from our labors. Think about it. We're not going to need sleep in heaven. Because we're no longer going to be confined to these mortal bodies. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 52, that we're told we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Because we will be changed and we will enter heaven with an imperishable body, there's not going to be any need for sleep. Sleep was a requirement for these mortal bodies. Because these bodies, they succumb to fatigue. They succumb to exhaustion, but not our imperishable, glorious body. See, for a great many of you, that may sound disappointing. Because you love your sleep. But think about how grand it will be to no longer need sleep. You will forever be able to operate without any exhaustion. The fact that your body will no longer need sleep means that you will never have to stop what you're doing because you're too worn out. In heaven, your muscles will never tire. Your eyes will never grow heavy. Your mind will never need to shut down. You will be able to live in the moment for all eternity. And I tell you what, that moment will be glorious because of what we're going to be doing. But we'll get to that in a minute. See, heavenly rest is not a reference to sleep, nor is heavenly rest a reference to inactivity. For some of us, when we think about rest, we think about doing nothing. 
We equate rest to not working. And for some of us, that's appealing. We look forward to those times when, whether it's temporary or permanent, that we're not going to have to do work. Whether we're talking about vacation or retirement, we look forward to not having to do work. But for others of us, the idea of doing nothing sounds absolutely awful. Truth be told, heaven is not, a pl- not described as a place of inactivity. Several passages depict heaven as a place where we will work. Look at what John said about heaven back in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, where our scripture reading came from a moment ago. He said, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, I don't know all the details of what our service in heaven will entail, but one thing I do know is that when we stand before the throne of God, we will serve him in some capacity. And if you keep reading there in Revelation chapter 22, you'll come to verse 5, where John says there's something else the residents of heaven will be doing. At the end of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, he says they will reign forever and ever. Now, you might be thinking, that's not true. Only God reigns. But look again at at this passage in Revelation chapter 22. From verse 3 on to verse 5, the pronoun they is used in reference to God's people, to God's servants. It is God's servants who will see his face in verse 4. It is God's servants who will have his name placed on their foreheads, also in verse 4. It is God's servants who will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, in verse 5. And it is God's servants who will reign forever and ever, in verse 5. Now this idea of reigning is consistent with other statements made in the New Testament. For instance, if you go to the parable of the talents, that one talent, I mean that five-talent servant and that two-talent servant are told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In Luke's version of that parable, which is known as the parable of the ten minas, you can find it in Luke chapter 19 and verse 17. And the master says to the the five-talent servant, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, I'm not trying to make any predictions about what heaven's going to be like based on these passages, but these, these, these parables are about the consummated kingdom of heaven based on the fact that they, uh, particularly the parable of the talents, appears after Jesus' teaching about the day of judgment and in conjunction with the verse at the start of Matthew 25, which, which compares these parables to the kingdom of heaven. All I'm saying is that the, the statements made in these parables, which are parables related to the kingdom of heaven, the statements made here imply some sort of rain. And then there's a statement made in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul said, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The point is that according to John's vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 22, we will be busy serving God and reigning. Don't know what that entails. 
I don't know that all the activities that goes into those statements. I don't know all that we're going to be doing in heaven. But one thing I can be certain of based on these passages is that we're not going to be doing nothing. Heaven is going to be a place of activity. My whole point is this. Rest is not a reference to inactivity in heaven. You're not going to be sitting there twiddling your thumbs wondering what you should do next. There's always going to be something to do in heaven. So if heaven, heavenly rest is not a reference to sleep and heavenly rest is not a reference to inactivity, what is it a reference to? I believe it's a reference to relief. Think about the significance of rest in the Bible for just a moment. Rest was so important to God that he decided to mandate it with one of, the, with one of his first five commands in Mosaic Law. And it was so important to God, rest was so important to God, that he prescribed the death penalty as a consequence for failing to observe it. But why was rest so important to God? Why did he care so much about rest? The reason rest matters to God is because it demonstrates our trust in him and our reliance upon him. When we rest, we surrender to the Lord by intentionally refraining from active control over our lives. In other words, when we rest, we are essentially proclaiming that everything is going to be okay because we believe that God's got everything under control. Consider for a moment how David communicated this concept throughout his psalms. In Psalm chapter 3 and verse 5, he writes as he's fleeing from his son Absalom, who's trying to take the kingdom away from him. He writes these words, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And then in Psalm chapter 4 and verse 8, he wrote, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In both of those psalms, David acknowledged that his ability to rest was because the Lord took care of him. The Lord protected him. The Lord was in control. It's even worth mentioning that David's most famous psalm identified the Lord as the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. In all of those psalms, David associated his ability to rest with his trust in the Lord. Now think about what we said about heaven just last week. In heaven, we will experience perfect rest as we reside in the place where evil no longer exists. As we reside in the place where death no longer dominates, where pain no longer persists, where temptation no longer threatens, and where the curse no longer corrupts. In other words, heaven will present us with perfect rest because we will have no reason to worry, no reason to doubt, no reason to be afraid, no reason to be frustrated, 
and no reason to be burdened. See, it's in heaven where you experience the ultimate relief that comes with rest. So heavenly rest is not a reference to sleep or inactivity, but to relief. And I think that's why Jesus' ultimate invitation, as stated in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, is all about rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, the point is that heaven is not going to be a place of endless passivity. It's going to be a place of energetic activity, absent the complications experienced in this curse-filled environment. But what are we going to be actively doing in heaven? If so many people confuse heaven as a place that's going to be eternally monotonous and boring, what will we actually be doing there? Well, let me share with you three things that I believe we'll be doing in heaven. Number one, in heaven we will engage in unencumbered worship. Now, everything we do in heaven will be for the glory of God, so in one sense, all of our activities will partake of the nature of worship. But there will be times of focused and fervent praise of a nature we have not experienced in this life. If you turn to the book of Revelation and you get this behind-the-scenes view of what's happening in heaven, you can go to chapter 4 and you can read about this worship scene taking place around the throne of God where where crowns are being cast and people are falling down you can come to Revelation chapter 7 and look at verses 9 through 12 which depicts this great multitude that no one could number that is standing before the throne and before the lamb with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb Again, we have another scenario in heaven where worship is abundant. Now, you may be thinking, I rarely enjoy worship down here, so why would I look forward to it up there? Worship in heaven is going to be unencumbered by all the things that flaw it down here. Our worship in heaven will be unencumbered because it's going to be celebratory. John's vision of worship in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, depicted this great multitude holding palm branches in their hands and praising God. His image is strikingly similar to the triumphal entry of Jesus. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, and the people are laying palm branches on the ground. It's the one time in his entire ministerial career that Jesus is celebrated as a king. And he allowed it. 
You know, we do that occasionally, that, that degree of celebration. We have been known to do that. It usually takes place when our team wins a championship. How did you feel when your favorite college team won a national championship? How did you feel when your favorite professional team won the World Series? What year was it that Atlanta won it? 95 was the last one? It's been a little while. We're all, we're all living here in the Atlanta area, so, so in Georgia you don't get a lot of that time. But in 1995, I'm sure there was a great number of you that celebrated that victory by the Braves. I still remember I was a Cardinals fan growing up. I've adopted the Braves now because I'm going to be a fan of where I live. But I was a Cardinals fan growing up. And I remember getting to see them win in the past couple of decades a couple of times. What if you're a Chicago Cubs fan? How did you feel, feel a few years ago when they broke the curse? Or a Red Sox fan back in 04 when they beat my Cardinals? We know that level of celebration, and what I want you to understand about heaven is it's always going to be like that. It's going to be a non-stop celebration of victory. You know why? Because you made it, and Christ brought the victory. And so our worship in heaven is not going to be encumbered by the frustrations of this world, by the negative experiences of this life and the stresses of this life. And we're not going to assemble in heaven with all these distractions on our mind that the world is bringing into our lives. We're going to be there and all we're going to think about is just how great it is to be in the in the of the throne because the victory has been achieved and we're living in the shadow of that victory for all eternity our worship in heaven will be unencumbered because it's going to be a constant celebration and our worship in heaven will be unencumbered because it's going to be spontaneous and involuntary for a great many of us assembling on a day like today, feels obligatory, feels mandatory. There's a point in your life where you may have even just looked at it as, I have to go to worship. That moment might even be right now. But in heaven, it's never going to feel that way. In heaven, when you get to see the face of your Creator, you're going to want to be there. You're going to feel compelled to worship. Have you ever stood before a natural wonder, say the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, or some location like that, and found yourself speechless? Have you ever sat on the beach at sunset, or looked down from a mountaintop, and just found yourself in a moment where you couldn't speak? That moment was spontaneous. That moment was involuntary. And that's how it's going to constantly be in the presence of our Creator. Worship is never going to feel obligatory. Worship is never going to feel like we have to do it. Worship is never going to feel like it's mandatory. It's always 
going to be a spontaneous and voluntary reaction to the splendor of the king on the throne. Go through the Bible, and every time a heavenly being made an appearance in Scripture, it was a spontaneous reaction. Whether it was an angel appearing to a human who fell before it, or it was a burning bush that Abraham couldn't be in front of for very long, Every time a heavenly being made an appearance on earth, it brought an awestruckness to the one who witnessed it. That's what worship in heaven is going to be like. And our worship in heaven will be unencumbered because it will be uninhibited. In heaven, we will be like David when he was leaping and dancing before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He was criticized by his wife for his behavior, and his simple response in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 21 was simply this, It was before the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. See, what will happen in heaven is you won't be afraid about how your voice sounds. You won't be afraid about letting your emotions show. You won't be afraid of what other people think about you. In heaven, those things won't matter. All too often, we restrain ourselves when we worship God because we are more concerned about the appearance, what we look like or what we sound like. And when we concern ourselves with such things, we're allowing mortals to dictate how we praise the immortal. In heaven, we won't have any concern about what others think about us when we praise God. Any of you ever sing in the bathroom? I'll be honest. What about in the car when you're by yourself? You ever sing by yourself in the car? I bet if I pulled up next to some of you at a stoplight, I'd find out. If you've ever found yourself singing in those private enclosures, you find out that you can really enjoy that song without worrying about what other people think about you you become quite uninhibited in those moments. That's what heaven will be like. Because we won't care what anyone thinks. All we'll care about is giving glory to the one who sits on the throne. So heaven won't be boring because you're going to worship God in a way that you have never fully experienced on this earth. That worship will not be monotonous. That worship will not be menial. That worship will not be boring. It's going to be everything that it was supposed to be on this earth every Sunday. You know what else we'll do in heaven? I believe in heaven we will also enlarge our knowledge of God. Heaven is not a place of omniscience. You don't enter heaven and all of a sudden you know everything. The New Testament reveals that the angels still have things to learn. For example, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that the institution of the church made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the manifold wisdom of God. They were still learning when the church was instituted. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 indicates that there are things into which angels long to look. 
That means there are things that they don't have full comprehension of. And of course, we're told in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 that not even the angels of heaven know the day and hour of Jesus's second coming. If those heavenly creatures don't know everything, then we won't know everything upon entrance to heaven either. Heavenly existence does not equate to omniscience. Omniscience is a quality reserved solely for God. And that means that when we get to heaven, there will be things to learn. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, that God, who raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, excuse me, I need to back up, that God raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. In other words, we're going to spend eternity having God reveal to us his unsearchable, incomparable grace See, here's the thing about learning in heaven. Learning in heaven will be enjoyable because it will not be, we will not be limited. Sometimes learning is not fun here. We've got a lot of college students back right now. Sometimes learning is not fun here. Because we operate with a flawed body. My attention span is flawed. And as a result, I get easily distracted. My memory is flawed, and as a result, I forget things that I've already learned. My patience is flawed, and as a result, I grow tired of learning. My comprehension is flawed, and as a result, there are some subjects I just can't wrap my mind around. But that's not how it's going to be in heaven. When we shed this mortal tent, learning will be completely enjoyable because our attention span won't be limited. Our memory won't fail us. Our patience will never be exhausted. And our comprehension will be perfect. But learning in heaven will also be enjoyable because of the subject matter. The subject matter will be infinite. Heaven will be a place of enjoyable learning because the subject will be God himself. And one attribute of God that will make learning about him enjoyable is that he is infinite. That means he is limitless. He is immeasurable. To put it simply, God is beyond ever completely knowing. There is always going to be more of him to learn. So when you get to heaven, you're going to be ever learning more and more about God. And here's the thing. When you're passionate about a subject, learning is enjoyable. Every one of us has something we don't mind learning about. Maybe for you, it's about sports. Maybe you love learning the history of a particular team or franchise. Maybe you love knowing the statistics and the players, and you love learning about that sport. Maybe for others of you, you love in learning about cooking. You love learning about how ingredients work together, how to utilize heat to accomplish the taste you desire. You love learning about different recipes and combinations. 
and you love to learn how to cook. Maybe for others of you, it's just different hobbies. You love to learn more about how to do those things you enjoy, whether it's crocheting, fishing, hunting, it doesn't matter. You love to learn about it. I love a good documentary. Boy, I come across a documentary on Netflix or Hulu or, or, or TV, I'll, I'll be stuck. I, can't, I watched two different documentaries on D.B. Cooper this week. Some of you don't even know who that is. I guess, yeah, there's an age gap there on that one. And I, I just love a good documentary. It will grab me and hold me and I won't stop. The worst thing to ever happen to me are these documentaries that now come out as miniseries. And you got to watch like 10 different episodes to get the whole picture. But I can waste some days on that. See, when you're passionate about something, learning is really enjoyable. Can you imagine just how enjoyable it's going to be to learn about your Creator? To sit down with God and have Him show you your life and have Him explain how He blessed you here and show you what He was planning for you at this phase that was fulfilled at that phase. And He's able to go through your life and tell you how He was involved. And you get to see it from His perspective. How great is it going to be to see Him as He is for the first time? to learn about him in the most intimate of settings possible. You're going to be eternally fascinated with an infinite God. So heaven won't be boring because you're going to be constantly learning about our Heavenly Father. And one last thing. One last thing we will do in heaven we will enjoy perfect fellowship. We're made in the image of God who is himself a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We are by nature communal beings. We need fellowship to some degree. And in heaven, we're going to experience fellowship like we have never known it. Two things I want you to notice about fellowship in heaven. Fellowship in heaven will be perfect because it will consist of a reunion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul wrote, We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That pronoun them is a reference to the dead in Christ. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The Christians in Thessalonica were concerned that their brothers and sisters in Christ who had preceded them in death might not get included when Christ returned. And Paul consoled them by explaining that when Christ returns, both living and dead saints will be reunited before Christ in the air. 
among us, there's been a lot of loss over the years. There are Christians we dearly miss. There are people we can't wait to see again. There are spouses in this audience who look forward to the day that they see their husband or wife again. There are children in this audience who can't wait to see their parents again. There are parents in this audience who can't wait to see their kids again. There are brothers and sisters in Christ right here who have men and women who have so influenced their life, their faith over the years. There's mentors and teachers that you just can't wait to be reunited with. Heaven's going to be a place of perfect reunion. I often get asked, will we know each other in heaven? And my answer is absolutely. I think about the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration? The apostles are there and they, they witness the spectacular change of Jesus' appearance. But they also witness two people show up. Moses and Elijah. They instantly recognize Moses and Elijah, two guys who lived millennia. Well, I shouldn't say that. Live centuries before them. How did they know that that was Moses and Elijah? You think Moses and Elijah were walking around with name tags? I think God provided the means for the apostles to recognize those Old Testament heroes. And I think he will do the same for all saints in heaven because I can't fathom a father gathering his family together as total strangers. The Bible frequently says that each individual who will inherit salvation is carefully listed by name in the book of life. For example, in, in this his letter to the church in Ephesus, as recorded in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The fact that the name of every saint is recorded in the book of life tells me that our identity, along with our deeds, per Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, will continue with us into the next life. We will know each other, I believe, when we get there. It's going to be a wonderful reunion. And the fellowship that comes as a part of that is going to be beautiful. But fellowship in heaven will also be perfect because it will lack any form of division. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In other words, John described heaven as a place where people of all backgrounds come together because they were united by the blood of Christ into the family of God. 
Later in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 2, John described the presence of the tree of life in heaven, and he said that its leaves were for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? Maybe one way we should understand that is that all the wounds that have been created by divisiveness, segregation, and cliquishness will be healed. In other words, heaven will be a place of fellowship with no pretense, a place where you don't walk up to a person and wonder what they're thinking about you. A place where you'll never have a communication barrier with others. A place where there'll be no discrimination, no segregation, no division of any sort. Those things won't be there because in heaven, everybody will love perfectly. I don't think I can say I've ever lived a day where I've been loved by every person. Because there are some people who don't love me because I'm an American. And there are some people in this world who don't love me because of my skin color. And there are some people who don't love me because of my religious views. But in heaven, I will never encounter a single person who doesn't love me. Because you can't love the Father unless you love his family. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. One preacher pointed out the reason that love is the greatest is because in heaven, faith will become sight and hope will become reality, but love will never be obsolete. We're never going to be bored with fellowship in heaven because it's going to present perfect love. Here's my question for you today. Why wait to pursue what you were made for? If you are made eternally for worship, Why not grow right now in worshiping? If you're made eternally to learn about God, why not learn now? If you're made forever to fellowship and love people, why wait? We may not be in heaven yet, but the church is the present manifestation of the kingdom. Eden may have been a foretaste of heaven, but the church is supposed to be a representation of it right now. Let me ask you this. If you're not living eager for heaven, then what does that tell people who have yet believed that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God? If you think heaven's going to be boring, then how can you ever convince someone else to join you in going there? And if you know 
what you're going to be doing in heaven, why not start doing it now? This morning we continue our study of heaven because if we truly understand how great heaven will be, then we'll live every moment preparing for it. Right now, at this moment, what do you need to do to prepare for heaven? Maybe you need to become a child of God by confessing your faith, repenting of your sins, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe as a child of God, you need to correct some aspect of your life. Maybe you need to seek the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you need to start doing what you will be doing for all eternity. Today we offer this invitation so that we can all prepare ourselves to go to heaven. If you need to respond, won't you do so now while together we stand and sing? Have thy affections been held to the fall?